exoneration for the wrongfully convicted could not be more important or more difficult. But what happens to the exoneree, to that person, after release? How does that person build a life after years in prison for something he or she did not do? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your host, guide, and geek to all things in the criminal legal system. And still happy as heck to have that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, here on the Criminal Injustice Podcast, we've brought you discussions and conversations and news about the wrongfully convicted. As of January 2020, the work of the Innocence Project in New York, the pioneering organization in this space, has resulted in the exoneration of over 360 people. Those are basically all DNA-based exonerations. Other organizations, such as the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, uh, they work on exonerations without the benefit of DNA proof. Our guest on episode 50, Marissa Boyers-Bluestein, who was then the executive director of the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, told us about that incredibly thorough and laborious process. As of now, that organization has brought 19 cases to final exoneration as of December 20 of 2020. An exoneration is a great thing. A person who should never have been incarcerated in the first place is out writing a real injustice. In some cases, the exoneration may even result in finding the real perpetrator. For example, if DNA is tested and identifies another person. But then what? What happens to a person who has spent years, maybe decades, in prison, now suddenly out? How do they have a life? Can they have a life? Getting them out rights the wrong, and of course, that's the most important and first thing. But what is left of a person after such an experience, and how does that person move forward? Well, one such person was Jeffrey Deskovic. Deskovic, at 17 years old, was convicted of the rape and murder of a high school classmate. Sixteen years later, all those years maintaining his innocence he was released. In this audio of Mr. Deskovic from PBS, he describes the moment when he walked out of prison a free man. It felt like a surreal uh, dream. I wasn't, in fact, that was my first uh, words when I stepped up to the, uh, the microphones at the press conference. I asked, uh, is this really happening? Now, to be released, that was justice. It was a sweet moment, but it was also a baffling and difficult set of moments about to start. Deskovic was nearly twice as old as he had been when he went to prison, and he had nothing, no network, no adult friends, none of the experiences you would have had as a person in that time in your life. Nothing. There's no assistance for exonerees when they're released. That's 
that's what I'm trying to that's what I'm trying to fill and you know it's very hard to put together a, a social life and just have people there for support all of this makes Jeffrey Deskovic's experience a pretty good case study in life not only after exoneration but after prison generally and this may be the bigger point here because for every exoneration release every year there are tens of of thousands of people released from prison when their sentences simply end or when they are paroled. People sometimes forget that well over 90% of all of the people we put into prison are someday released, even those in prison on very long sentences. The attention that an exoneration attracts to a person like Deskovic thus creates the opportunity to observe through his case, the far more common experience of release from prison after a long sentence. Our guest today has made a documentary about Jeffrey Deskovic that focuses on the period after his release and what it takes. Is it possible to build a life? It shows one man trying to navigate this journey and contains lessons for all the rest of us as we bring back the formerly incarcerated people that we, that's right, we have jailed as we bring them back into our community to live among us. Gia Wirtz is a filmmaker. She's a native of Calgary, Alberta in Canada, and she now lives in New York City. Her first film, Conviction, a short documentary, zeroes in on the conviction, exoneration, and life after prison of Jeffrey Deskovic. After those 16 years in prison, he was freed, and the film allows us to see what happens when the criminal system swallows a person, and then afterwards, when it gives him up. The film has already won several awards, and a long-form version is on the way. In addition to her work as a filmmaker, Gia Wirtz has written for Forbes and is the founder of and fashion designer for Studio 15. Her film, Conviction, is available now on Amazon, and we've got a link to it up on our website. Gia Wirtz, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thanks so much for having me, David. This is great. Well, let's start by asking you what you see as sort of the big picture idea behind uh, this film and sort of the, the, the work you're pursuing more generally. I was really taken with a statement on your bio. Uh, it said that uh, what you're trying to do is, and I'll quote here, explore the conflict between institutional systems and the individuals victimized by those institutions in the name of protecting the social order. Give us a sense of what you mean by that. You know, for me, my goal was to shed light on wrongful convictions and for a couple of reasons. And one, I think that most people don't think of this as a cause that is something to be concerned about. It's not something that people are aware of, I feel, on a day-to-day -day basis, unless they've been personally impacted by it somehow, if someone they know has been wrongfully convicted, if they have, or they've, you know, had some run-ins with police misconduct or something like that. It's just not something the average person thinks about on a regular day-to-day -day basis. And they often believe in law enforcement. They think that, you know, if 
somebody got arrested or I'm reading about something in the news, probably the person is guilty. The person that I'm reading about is guilty. And there's that automatic assumption. And so that that is what really uh, is bothersome to me. And that's what really made me want to shed light on this cause. I see. Yeah, I run into that too. I, I find with my students that most of them, uh, never having had any kind of a bad experience with law enforcement, simply give it a sort of good faith assumption. And that's not always true for everyone. And so your work is designed to get at that set of questions? Yeah, exactly. So what drew your attention particularly to the case uh, of Jeffrey Deskovic. Did you know about this when it happened? Had it come to your attention in some other way? That's a really interesting question. I didn't know anything about Jeff's story or his case when it happened. I, when I was 20, I had read a book, which is still to this day, my favorite book. It's Reuben Carter's The 16th Round. Oh, Hurricane Carter. Yes. Yes. 25 years ago, I read that book and it just, I was really young and it just made an impression on me. It stuck with me. It was such a raw account of a human going through this horrific experience while being innocent and accused of a horrific crime. And have you read the book actually? I read it a long time ago as well. And for those who have not read it, can't recommend it more highly. And you can also listen to Bob Dylan's song called Hurricane, which is a fabulous song and a great story as well. Yes, that's what, you know, I was young and I loved Bob Dylan and the film was great and the book was just amazing. And it really, it just really stuck with me. And that's what was my initial introduction to wrongful convictions. And for some reason, it just pulled at my heartstrings, stuck with me. I've never had any personal experience with anything related to wrongful convictions, except for I had read that book. And then fast forward to, I think it was 2014 or 2015, my husband came home one day and said, you got to listen to this podcast. It's amazing. And I said, no because podcasts were so new back then. I had never really listened to them and I'm a very visual person and I liked videos. And so I said, no. And he said, you know, give it a try. It's about a wrongful conviction and it's about a Pakistani family and my family is Pakistani. So that could relate to that aspect. And so I said, okay, let's listen to it. And like the rest of the world, I was completely hooked. It was serial, the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Criminal Injustice listeners will remember that on episode 26, yes, way back in episode 26, our guest was Sarah Koenig, the producer and voice behind the first season of Serial. Yeah, she did such a great job. She's so talented at storytelling. Um, However, it did leave out some important details about the case, which is one of my complaints, but (laughs) it was a great- And many other people have the same complaint, yes. Yeah, but it was a great podcast. So anyways, long story short, I listened to Serial and I was very, very- affected by what happened to Adnan and I believe is in his innocence. And I couldn't believe that, you know, while the world was being entertained by this story, that this young man was sitting in prison for now almost, you know, 16 at the time. I don't know if it was 15 years, 16 years. And I just, I hated the thought of that. And so I had reached out to his family to see if there was something I could do to help. I didn't hear back from anyone. And so I decided that I didn't need to hear from them in order to help the cause. And so I organized a fundraiser with a friend of mine in New York, and we just did local bands and we sold tickets to the show. And I, since I had a fashion company, I made these free Adnan t-shirts and we sold them and we ended up, you know, making a few thousand dollars in one night. We donated it. And through that process, we got put in touch with the family and the family is just one of the nicest people I've 
uh, family and group of people I've ever known. And through the process of organizing this fundraiser, my friend said, you know, we should have somebody who can speak to this because we're not experts on wrongful convictions. And she said, I know a guy, I met him at a party. His name is Jeff. And he has a very similar story to Adnan in that he was very young when he was convicted and it was a wrongful conviction. And I said, absolutely. And so she introduced me to Jeff and that's how I met wow. him. Ah, so personal contact. So give us a short version of kind of what happened to Jeffrey Discovic. He was 16. He was at Peekskill High School. And it was a very, it is a very small town, very safe. I think at that time, back in 89, there had not been any homicide or murder for at least 10 years. And Unfortunately, Angela Correa, who was another student at Peekskill High, was raped and murdered. And when the detectives came to question kids at school, some of the kids ended up telling them that Jeff was kind of quiet and a little, you know, kept to himself or odd. And that turned their attention to Jeff. And after that, they went to Angela's wake and Jeff was very uh, emotionally, he was crying. He was very moved um, by what happened. And he said that was because he he, um, it was his first brush with death, he said. And so he was really saddened by the whole thing. And so the police looked at his emotional response as a sign of guilt. And then over the course of the next few months, they took him around, took him to the crime scene, fed him details about the case until they eventually coerced a false confession out of him. And the confession was the basis for his guilt, even though... There was DNA at that time, and it was tested, and the DNA excluded him, if I remember correctly. That is right. His DNA did not match. And and then this is where the misconduct came in. And, well, and a couple of, of course, the, the coerced confi- confession was misconduct, um, but they also had the medical examiner say some things that weren't true in order to kind of minimize why his DNA wasn't there. And if I remember correctly, they said something along the lines of um, it was semen because she was raped. And so they said she had multiple partners and therefore the semen didn't really matter. It didn't matter. And they tried to just minimize it and, and make that go away. Yeah. And that is, you know, that brings to mind something that I know my students are always at first puzzled by, Uh, And I really do emphasize it with them, the power of a confession. If you say you have a confession, a confession is so uniquely powerful that it will even allow the police to get around things like DNA that doesn't match up. And uh, I mean, there are so many cases like this. uh, People just think, you know, if I didn't do something, I'd never confess to it. Um, And it does not turn out to be true. Everybody thinks that you ask anybody and they would say, I would never confess to something I didn't do. But that's so easy to say when you're not the person in that position. Right. And especially for Jeff, he was interrogated for, I think, seven hours and they had driven him to outside to a different county. His parents didn't know he was there. He had no lawyer. Uh, He was with these police officers who had pretended to be his friend for the last three months. So he trusted them and they fed him coffee all day. He'd never drank coffee in his life. He was 16. So he was very jittery. He'd had no food. And And they gave him a lie detector test and then started to tell him that the lie detector test has already told them the truth and they already know he did it. And so after seven hours, they said, you need to just tell us what we already know verbally. And if you tell us that we'll drive you home and this will be over. And after just being, you know, broken down, being 16, he thought, I just want to go home. And he just said it. Yeah. Well, this is very much 
the right down the the pike on the uh, false confession issues. There's everything there. Everything that you've said are things that uh, we talk about in in the era and in the area of false confession. So his confession is basically uh, uh, false and it is worked out of him using all the standard techniques. Um, at that point, uh, he goes to trial, he's convicted and sentenced to prison and he goes to state prison and, and, and he's maintained his innocence all along, said he was not confessing to the crime. Um, and uh, he does his best while he's inside trying to find help, a lawyer, all his appeals have run out. And then he gets a call one day, or he has a visitor, excuse me, I should say, that really surprises him. Talk about that. Yeah, that was so fascinating to me as well. So for years, Jeff wrote letters. He That's all he felt he could do. It is really all he could do. He had exhausted all his appeals. And so he wrote letters to anybody that he thought could be of assistance. And he said, I think he said like 99% of the time, nobody ever wrote back. So he just, for I think it was four years, he just wrote letters. One of the letters that he wrote to somebody they ended up forwarding it to Claudia Whitman, who does some work with people who've been wrongfully convicted. And she read the letter and she wrote him, Jeff, back and giving him advice, saying, I think you should reach out to the Innocence Project again, because I think at this point you have a reason to. She gave him some, you know, uh, legal reason to. And so he took her advice and he didn't know her. He hadn't written to her. Someone had forwarded a letter that Jeff wrote to her. And so he followed her advice and wrote to the Innocence Project again. And that time, the Innocence Project took his case. And I don't know exactly what happened, you know, when they received it, but they accepted his, his case, and then they ran the DNA. And Nina Morrison told me at the time, she was a lawyer at the Innocence Project, who was the surprise visit that Jeff got. She said that at that time, Jeff's exoneration, which was done within a few days, was the fastest exoneration ever done um, up until that point. And so it happened so fast that Jeff wasn't expecting that at all, of course. And so when they ran, ran the DNA through the database, it matched somebody else. And that's why it was able to be done so quickly. And then Nina showed up to visit Jeff to tell him that it matched somebody else and that he would be exonerated. Yeah, when he describes that in your film of having a visitor, he doesn't even know, actually. Uh, and he goes and sits down with this person who says, I'm your lawyer at the Innocence Project and you are going home. Uh, he frankly can't believe it. Uh, and two days later, when he is actually released, he's still he's still uh, wondering if it's real or not. And let me, let's just get one detail really uh, important here. There was DNA the first time around. What made the difference is now the DNA matched another person, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. exactly right. And that turns out to be the key in the lock that opens the cell door, right? Yep. Yep. A hundred percent. So they match it to somebody else and your film contains this, I, I found it kind of incredibly chilling, these, these just few moments of this other man basically confessing to the murder and rape of the young lady uh, for whom Jeffrey went to prison. Yes, it, it is chilling because even he almost smirks as he talks and he so seems nonchalant about the whole thing. It's very chilling. It's yeah. shocking. Yeah, and if... 
you know, if the police had not thought, well, Jeffrey confessed, it's definitely him. And they had maybe uh, decided to go after, well, the DNA doesn't match. Maybe we don't have the right guy. The really chilling thing is that we find out that this man who did the first, who did the murder for which Jeffrey went to prison, he actually raped and murdered somebody else while Jeffrey was sitting in prison. Yeah, I don't know if he raped the second person. He murdered her, I think. I could be wrong about that. Uh, but yes, he did commit a second murder, and which wouldn't have happened had he been caught the first time and they had done the job correctly the first time instead of accusing Jeff. Yeah, yeah. And I do apologize for getting that detail wrong. I mean, that is the thing. People have to realize that not only when you have, when somebody's wrongfully convicted, not only do you have the mistake of a monstrous injustice, the person who really did it is still out there. And that, that uh, can result as, as it did in this case uh, in another tragedy. So uh, Jeffrey gets out and there he is. And in the introduction to our episode today, I played a little audio that has him saying, basically he gets out and he has nothing. He doesn't have anywhere to go. He doesn't have any, any resources at all. Yeah. Yeah. And sorry to your previous point too. The other thing that I found very, that I often wonder is the detectives who coerced the confession out of Jeff are also peak skill residents. And so wouldn't they also have a personal motive and desire to find the right person to keep their community safe because this murder was loose and free in their own small town. I find that very odd you know, because you wouldn't want mm -hmm. that for your own backyard, right? So, so that's alarming. But sorry, what was your last question? <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, the question is, uh, he gets out, and he's really finds himself nowhere. He has nothing, no resources. He doesn't, you know, it's not like they give him anything when he leaves. Yeah, no, they don't. They don't. And he, Jeff said that he almost, and he was almost homeless. And he luckily got into uh, college and I guess he had, he was able to live in a dorm um, that was very affordable, but he said he was days away from just being homeless because they don't give you anything. Let's take a quick break here. We're with filmmaker Gia Wirtz. Her film is Conviction about the case of Jeffrey Deskovic. We'll be right back. Stay with us. David Harris with you for Criminal Injustice. Our guest on this episode is filmmaker Gia Wirtz. We're talking about her film, Conviction, which you can see now on Amazon. It's about the case of Jeffrey Deskovic, who was wrongfully convicted, exonerated, and released. And now let's talk about his situation when he was released. You say, uh, and he said in some audio that we heard, Gia, that he, uh, he gets out, he's basically got nothing. They don't give him any food, no clothes. He's basically just released. And he's days away from homelessness himself, uh, and he manages to connect with a college program, which allows him to get into a dorm, which turns out to be a real lucky break for him. Uh, what happens uh, in, in his struggle to put his life into something, some kind of shape? Uh, you know, Jeff is such, he has, 
I, I love Jeff's story because it's such a story of human spirit because Jeff has went from the lowest lows to the highest highs and he grew up with a single mom. So he never knew his father and they didn't have a lot of money, which is why they originally, you know, couldn't have a better lawyer and all of that. When he got into this mess, uh, when he got out, he had a really rough relationship with his mom because he felt that she didn't help him and that, you know, he was kind of left to figure this out on his own. So he, he was frustrated. They now have a good relationship, which is really nice to see. But in the beginning, it was tough. And as Jeff put it, you're gone for 16 years and people stop visiting as frequently as they used to. And you just kind of people just go on with their lives and you almost just grow apart and you don't have all that time to build, you know, strong relationship, I guess. And, and, Unfortunately, 16 to, I don't know, 34 or so, there's such impressionable years where you learn about yourself and you, you know, create relationships with people, friends, family, significant oh, sure. others. Yeah. So yeah. he had a really, really rough time after he got out, but he, Jeff just has so much drive as you saw in the film. He went to college and then he continued his education and he's just, he's really made something out of himself. Yeah, and he's unusual in that, um, uh, not unusual in the fact of coming out with basically nothing and his very few family relationships, and in, in, in fact, a key relationship, the one with his mother, really frayed to the point of almost breaking. Uh, this is actually quite common for people who are released without any exoneration, just people who are released. And we should keep in mind that uh, Jeff's story uh, is is so interesting, but there were, for every Jeff, for every person exonerated, there are tens of thousands of people every year who are just released from prison because their sentences are over. And they, like Jeff, have been away for some, some of them very long times and have missed very formative years and growth and relationship building that all of us kind of take for granted. Absolutely. And Jeff... I mean, I don't want to use the word lucky because there's nothing lucky about what happened to him, but he was exonerated. You know, he went on to sue the medical examiner and the prosecutor and got a really big settlement. And so that has helped him do all the other work he's done since and kind of turn his life around. But for a lot of people, they have no financial support and then they can't even get a job because they have this thing on their on their record. And so they're just set up to fail once they get out. They can't integrate back into society. Yeah. And that's the really difficult thing that goes on for so many people. Um, yeah, you're right. There's nothing lucky about what happened with Jeff, but he was fortunate because there are plenty of states and, and plenty of individual situations which would not give you any compensation, even if you were wrongly convicted. Isn't that true? It is true. Yeah, absolutely. And Jeff wouldn't have gotten anything either if he didn't pursue his, the civil lawsuits. Right. Himself. So he, right. So he wasn't given money uh, except through the the uh, the pursuit of his legal remedies that way. Um, so he gets out. He gets an education for himself, and he eventually goes to law school. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say some of the most compelling film in there to me, since, you know, I'm a law professor is watching him graduate. I mean, it was, you know, you just think of where this person has been and he is graduating from law school. Yeah, I know. It was such a, such a touching moment. Uh, but again, like I said, Jeff just has so much drive and he's such a, an example of 
what, what human spirit can do and uh, and good for him and his Jeff you know I don't want to give away the end of the film so maybe I won't say this but <laughs> the work that Jeff has done prior to becoming a lawyer was remarkable so what he can do now I just can't even imagine yeah and he like you like you said a minute ago he did receive some compensation which has enabled him to set up this foundation which he uses to work uh, for other people who end up in a very similar kind of situation. Uh, but even so, there are some things that I think the film is really good about exposing some things he cannot seem to rebuild. It's these relationships. And, you know, uh, that might seem like a small sounding thing when you spent all that time in prison and now you're out and that's all good. But we're so aware now with the pandemic and how we've been cut off from people. We're so aware of how our relationships and our ability to be with people, how central they are to us as human beings. And that is what really hit me about his situation. Yes, he has some advantages given that he was compensated. But what happens when he tries to build those things that make for a human life? Yeah, he has a lot of roadblocks and a lot of challenges. And, you know, he said simply just his dating life. He says that he meets women and everything seems great, except for within the first few questions, they say, you know, what do you do for work? And he's very passionate about wrongful convictions. He talks about it all of the time in his free time during work hours. And he says, people will often say, well, why are you so passionate about this? And it's a quick two or three questions and he has to reveal what happened or of course, as the online dating world, they'll Google him. And before they even get on the date, they'll know his history. And he said that that has proven to be a real roadblock because women, and it's really interesting to me because I can see this from a female perspective as well. I can see it from Jeff's, Jeff's perspective and I can see it from a female perspective. Those women think, okay, you're innocent, sure, but you grew up in prison. So it was a violent environment. So are you a violent person or what happens when you get mad? And they just walk away because they don't want to put themselves in a compromising position, which I, I could say I would probably do that as well. So I can see the challenge. And Jeff is completely harmless and has such a big heart and is such a great human. But if you just look at it on paper, of course, you'll be concerned that he grew up in prison, you know, for all his formative years. Yeah. So we see his side of it on the screen. You can feel it and hear it in his voice, the disappointment he feels. But I think you've really you've really articulated uh, uh, something that is maybe not in the film, but is also there. Uh, which is the the perspective of another person thinking, do I want to invest in a relationship like this, knowing where this man has spent so much time? Exactly. And then I can't blame the other people for thinking that way either, because of course, everyone's worried about their well-being and their safety. But it's really sad to see, you know, for me, it even goes back further. It's really sad to see that Jeff was just a quiet kid. I mean, how many people are quiet or awkward at school? I sure was, you know, first, and that played against him. And then he was very emotional at the wake. And that just shows that he was a very emotional person, a very caring person. And that was you know, played against him again, or worked against him. And then fast forward, he spends all this time in prison, and he has the 
you know, drive to get himself out, which most people can't do, you know, just by writing letters and whatnot and reading law books and learning about the legal system. And then he gets out and he's already endured this horrific, horrific experience and ordeal. And then when he's just trying to live his life, he's almost punished again when he's out in society because people have their own judgments and reservations about what he's been through. It's very, very sad. Yeah. And I gather from what you're saying, it goes beyond just the inability to establish an intimate relationship. It might, it might be something that would get in the way of just making friends. It does. And Jeff says it does, especially because Jeff is like an overgrown kid. I mean, he literally does want to just go to amusement parks and play sports and things. And he says most people that are in their mid 40s don't really do that on a day to day basis. And they have, you know, families and children and their lives are busy with other things. And it's just not what they're focused on. And he missed out on all that and still wants to do it. And he can't find people to do it with. And that's heartbreaking. Do his, has he uh, reestablished things with his family? Do they regard him as, you know, well, you're, you're out, but you're still, you know, we're still suspicious of you. Uh, How do people regard him day to day? No, not at all. They, they are so proud of the work he's done. And, you know, they always, his family always believed in his innocence. They just couldn't do anything to to help, I guess, because they didn't have the financial means, you know, they didn't have any legal knowledge. They were, they didn't have a hire, they didn't hire a lawyer. They got a court appointed lawyer, um, but they've always believed in his innocence. So they're very proud of what Jeff has been able to do. Well, that's good. Um, so uh, he's dealt with some of the things that uh, many people who are simply released non-exonerees also deal with uh, he's been able to deal with those things such as getting a driver's license, uh, getting himself a place to live, putting together an education. Those are big, big stumbling blocks for the regular folks who are released, aren't they? Yes, yes, they are. And Jeff has had other, um, he's shared with me completely other uh, issues like that. For example, once he was exonerated, he was flying to Canada to do a talk at a university um, about the work he does. And he got stopped at the border and they wouldn't let him go. And it took a while because they said they looked in their database and somehow the information from the American system wasn't uh, relate to the Canadian system. And so it looked like he still had a criminal record, which he didn't because he'd been exonerated, but it somehow didn't get updated there. And so he got held there and he still deals with things like that, that are just unfair and shouldn't be the case. And he's still treated not so well hmm. in certain situations, you know? So what can you tell us about what he's doing now? So he launched uh, quite a while ago, I forget what year, but the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation, and he's been working on exonerating people who were wrongfully convicted. Um, And he's done that for quite some time. And then, as you mentioned, he graduated law school, which was so exciting for him because he feels that now he has, you know, something else in his arsenal that can help him help these other people. And Jeff tells me all the time, that's his, you know, single mission in life. And that's all he wants to do. I actually asked him, uh, I said, you know, once you got that settlement, did you want to just leave and go to like Barbados and live by yourself on the beach and just enjoy life? Because I would be angry. I would have resentment, I think. And he said, not at all. He said, I didn't even think about it for one second because there were other people like me and there were other innocent people I met with in my time in prison. And I would not just leave them behind like people left me behind. And yeah, so Hmm. that's what he does now. And it's, it's remarkable work. And 
tell us just a little bit about what's ahead as you move towards uh, uh, producing a full-length documentary. Yeah, so we're in the final stages of post-production on the feature-length version of Jeff's story, and I'm now just starting research on a third story. So my goal is to release Jeff's feature film in the new year, mid-2021, and then my my personal goal is to tell the story of somebody who's currently incarcerated so that we can either, you know, shed some new, shed some light on new details of their case, or at the very least, give them a platform to have a voice because they you know, been silenced through unjust incarceration. And I would love to be able to help somebody in that position. And so that's my goal with future films. And that's what I'm hoping to work on right now with my third one. Well, best of luck to you on that project as you move forward. That is Gia Wirtz. She is a filmmaker whose first film, Conviction, tells the story of the conviction, exoneration, and then post-release life of a wrongfully convicted man, Jeffrey Deskovic. You can see the film right now on Amazon. Look for the link to it on our website. And I want to thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Stick with us. We'll be right back with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this report of a lawyer behaving badly from Law360 and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Todd Stubbs of Montana. Let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, the pandemic is wearing on everyone. And who knows, maybe that's what got to Lawyer Stubbs. His client, a man who alleged he was injured in an oil field accident caused by his employer, his client was the subject of a deposition and lawyer Stubbs was there to defend the client as the client was questioned. A deposition, you'll remember, is a pretrial session in which lawyers question witnesses under oath in preparation for trial. When opposing counsel wanted to ask a question that things that lawyer Stubbs didn't consider relevant to the case, given the facts, the usual and proper reaction would be, Objection! No foundation! As in, the lawyer asking the question has not put enough facts in the record to show that this line of questioning is relevant. That's the foundation. That's what we call it. There must be a certain amount of groundwork laid. Facts presented in the record through witness testimony or documents or anything showing why this line of questioning is in fact relevant. If that isn't done, a judge at the trial, which, remember, comes later, might rule that any answer that follows the question is not relevant and might exclude it from evidence at trial. In depositions, the objection is made, and opposing counsel then might rephrase the question or ask foundation-building questions or not. But in any case, the deposition goes on. But that, my friends, is not what happened here. Instead, Lawyer Stubbs decided that he just had it with the lawyer on the other side. He insisted on getting more facts right now, and he would not let the point go, and his language quickly got out of hand. 
Here's a sample right from the transcript, edited just for that whole brevity thing. Lawyer Stubbs to the opposing lawyer. If you're going to say that another contractor did some treatment, then you'd better lay some foundation, dude. You are fucking... No, no, no. You are screwing with a trial lawyer. Okay, what's your foundation? Opposing lawyer. I don't have any. Mr. Stubbs, you are screwing with the wrong dude, man. Opposing lawyer. Todd. Lawyer Stubbs. No, 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 no. If you're going to ask my client a question, okay, and it has to do with evidence, and it has to do with something else, some other company or whatever, get your evidence out where you have foundation problems. This is a problem for all you guys out there. Are you guys all listening to the other lawyers and opposing counsel? Opposing lawyer? Oh, yeah. Mr. Stubbs, you are not dicking around with, you know, you are not dicking around with a rookie. I'm going to bury you guys. When the opposing lawyer wanted to ask the client about having gone to another oil site, lawyer Stubbs again objected. Mr. Stubbs, no, no. Let's talk about the site where he got hurt, okay? The other sites he went to, whether he went to them or not, it's irrelevant. Let's talk about the site that your representative fucked up on. Okay, let's talk about that. And, you know, I've got to tell you something, man. You know, my client, he's lucky. He's lucky to be alive. Did you guys get that? Opposing counsel. Yeah, got it. Mr. Stubbs. No, no, no. I don't think you get it. Have you ever, like, do you know, have you ever worked as a laborer? Opposing counsel, yes. Mr. Stubbs, all right. What about all you other big dudes? Stubbs was addressing here the other lawyers present. Opposing lawyer, say, Todd, the other lawyers aren't being deposed. And then a third time, when opposing counsel wanted to show Stubbs' client a photograph, lawyer Stubbs did not like this at all. Lawyer Stubbs. Quote, can I fly up to North Dakota and just fucking hit you right in the middle of the forehead with an uppercut? And that doesn't even come close to what my, what my client went through. How about that? How about that? Well, the other lawyers had had it with Lawyer Stubbs, but they weren't the only ones. Lawyer Stubbs' client, the person that Stubbs was supposedly trying to help that day, fired him in the middle of the deposition. And the lawyers on the other side asked the judge in charge, federal magistrate Claire Hawkhalter, to have Stubbs pay their client's attorney's fees for this deposition free-for-all. Magistrate Hawkhalter decided not to do that. Instead, he took a lighter touch. Quoting from his order, Stubbs has endured the indignities of being fired by plaintiff in the middle of a deposition and of having his churlishness and general lack of professionalism memorialized for posterity in this order. Hawkhalter wrote, quote, this is sanction enough. Well, one hopes, but the folks in the jurisdictions where lawyer stubs practices should be making notes. The next judge, the next time, might not be dicking around. 
That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to our Ask Dave tab on that website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Call 412-407-3389. Again, 412-407-3389. Remember that we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. We really do appreciate our supporters. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.